Well, it's great to have you all here and uh, to be able to share this time together. And we're coming towards the end of our series. We're into our last chapter uh, on Amos. And we're looking at these first 10 verses. The next uh, Sunday morning, or no, a couple of weeks' time, I think, uh, we're going to be looking at um, the... Uh, Anyway, I lose track. Sometime, very soon, we're going to look at the last uh, section of this passage because um, we're going on a break soon, so we'll be away a weekend. But I think it's the weekend after, so I, t- I, think, I think it is next week. Anyway, we're going to complete the book of Amos very shortly, and it's the, the shepherd prophet, and the particular t- title that for today's message is No Place to Hide. Now, I want you to imagine that you are Amos. Think about that for a moment, that you are Amos. You've left home, you left work, how long for we don't know. This could be a, a short-term mission project that Amos was on. Maybe he went back to his shepherding and his uh, tending of the fig trees. Um, it's a nine-chapter book here, so it could be that he went back to his trade after delivering this message, as God told him to. But he's traveled to a rival nation. Imagine that. Imagine going to a nation with whom you've uh, had a war, like it's, there's been a civil war. And you're going to the enemy side, and you're traveling up north to go and speak to, to your rivals. It was a long time ago. You had the battles, but there's been the main battle, but there's been skirmishes and battles down through the years. And you've been going to speak to these people, and you've been speaking to them not a nice message. You've been speaking to them about their corruption, about their idolatry, about their injustice, about their sexual immorality, about their tr- terrible treatment of the poor in the country about slavery going on, people, Israelites being sold into slavery uh, and the rich people oppressing uh, the, the poorer people. So lots of terrible things going on and you've been speaking about this, challenging the people of the north there. And your message has been mostly an announcement of the Lord's judgment. It's been a hard message. And I'm sure as you first read uh, through Amos, as we read through it bit by bit with our Bible readings week by week, I'm sure that you, you found some passages really hard to, to take in. And uh, we've been blessed, haven't we, how God has opened them up to us and we've seen lots of wonderful truths in these passages. But and the initial hearing would have been very hard, wouldn't it? And very hard to deliver that message uh, to, to the people. But there's also an appeal from God too in this mess- these messages that Amos brings and there's also hope. But that's you, Amos, proclaiming this message. Imagine that getting opposition from key religious, a key religious leader, Amaziah. Probably mocked, jeered by passers-by, maybe things thrown at you. Don't forget, this is a rival nation, and you're not telling them a nice message. And this is the last vision that the Lord wants uh, Amos to tell the people of the north, uh, and it's another one about disaster on unrepentant, complacent sinners. You might start off and you're standing in the marketplace, maybe by the temple in Bethel, and you know what you've got to say. God has given it to you. You've got this burden on your heart, but you know it's not a nice message. It's certainly these ten, first 10 verses of this, and it's, it's hard, and you manage to start with God's strength and proclaim this message, but it's not going to be easy. Now, I want you to flip things around, and I want you to put your feet in the sandals of the man or the woman in Israel, the person who's there passing through the marketplace. The person who sees this crazy preacher on the steps maybe that lead up to the temple in Bethel there. And you see him. And as you see him, you're standing in a doorway. And you stop to listen. And you kind of step back into that doorway, into the shadows of that doorway. And you start to take notice. 
Now, you saw this preacher when you went last week to the market, uh, when you were getting some vegetables and so on and doing some duties in the marketplace and in the center of town. But then you just passed by. Then you didn't stop. You just ignored him. You'd heard about this preacher the last few weeks maybe and uh, he's just a crazy man and no one must listen to him. But now you stop. Even though you step back into the shadows of this doorway, this time you listen. And this time somehow his words strike a chord in your heart. And what he says is powerful. What he says is with conviction and it starts to make sense. And something of an urgency starts in your heart. And as you listen, five truths hit home. First of all, I cannot hide from the Lord Almighty. I cannot hide from the Lord Almighty. Verse 1 of the message that you hear from Amos, I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. No one will get away. No one will escape. And you're hearing that. You're in the marketplace, in the shadows of that doorway, but you're hearing that. And it conviction, that sense that I cannot hide from the Lord Almighty. Now, this reminds me of Samson, this, uh, these verses here. Remember, with, with God's strength at the end of his life, Samson pushed the pillars of the, the pagan temple, uh, the Philistine temple, and it fell down on all the worshippers, the pagan worshippers there, and on Samson himself. That's how his life ended. But here is a picture of the Lord ordering the tops of the pillars to be struck. And the result is the same in this image, in this vision here. Pagan worshippers are killed. And of those that escape the collapse of the building, they're found and they're killed by the sword. Now, is this a prediction of what the Assyrian army will do when they attack Israel? Maybe. But anyway, this is the Lord ordering this in judgment. Now, the pagan worshippers in the temple who go to, to Bethel or Dan, Gilgal or Beersheba uh, in Israel would claim to be the Lord's people. The Israelites in the north, whom Amos is preaching to, would claim to be the Lord's. But in those places, which used to have godly histories, the Israelites were now, in those places of worship, complicit with corruption, prostitution, and idolatry. And we see this picture of people seeking refuge in these places of worship. The people inside the temple there. People cowering, seeking sanctuary in the, in the temple that's been used to worship idols and to defame the Lord's name. Verse 4 says, this is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek, sorry, chapter 5, verse 4, going back a couple of pages. Chapter 5, verse 4, if you remember, this is what God says. This is the appeal in this message. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. So God has already appealed to people not to go to these places for refuge, for sanctuary, but to turn to him, to seek him and to live. Now, a simple question comes from this in application. Are we seeking sanctuary in the wrong place? Are you seeking sanctuary in the wrong place? Are we seeking sanctuary in the thought of being here amongst God's people in a, a Christian place of worship? Do we seek sanctuary in being religious? Do we seek sanctuary in good feelings, in pleasure? Do we seek sanctuary in, in a whole variety of things? Do we seek sanctuary in church? You know, sometimes I've heard people describe how they have started coming along to, to services, giving their testimony, and something starts to ring alarm bells when they say, it was great when I found the church. 
And they mention the church and the church and the church, but they don't say, I recognize I was a sinner, I repented and I trusted in Jesus. And now Jesus is my savior. Now I'm not denying that everyone who says that is, is not a Christian. I'm not saying that everyone who says that is not a Christian, but it's Jesus, isn't it? He's the one. It's not the church, it's not us. If you put your trust in us, we'll let you down. But come to the Lord, seek him and you will live. Now, as you stand in the doorway, imagine you're that person listening to Amos across the other side of the marketplace. You remember how that several prophets, mad preachers, as people called them, they've come and gone over the years. You've heard of ones in the past before your time. They're the butt of the jokes in the community. And a half smile starts to come across your face as you remember some of the jokes they've said about Amos and other prophets from the past. But it's quickly wiped away. That smile goes as the words of Amos ring out. And the next truth hits you here. The second thing is this. Running away from the Lord is pointless. Running away from the Lord is pointless. It follows on from the previous point that we, we cannot escape God. We cannot escape him, can we? And the question you ask yourself as you're listening to Amos is this. Why do I want to hide from God? Why do I feel that I want to hide from him? Because you know somehow you do. Well, if we're guilty, if we're refusing to face our faults with a heart to change, then we will be likely to run or try to run away from God. Verse 2 of our passage says, Though they dig down to the depths below, there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them and down and seize them, and so on. So basically, you cannot escape. You cannot, cannot outrun God. You cannot escape from him. You cannot outrun him. Running away from the Lord is pointless. But why do people, why do I want ever to run away or hide from God? Well, it's the natural sinful reaction. It's the natural sinful reaction of a human heart to run or hide from the holy God. But it is pointless. It is pointless. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 3 uh, and verse 7 to 10, we have the account of how sin came to the world and how the first two people, Adam and Eve, that they felt ashamed. They realized that they were naked. That they hadn't realized that concept before. Uh, in a sense, it's more than just a physical uh, sensation they had. It was more the sense of the exposed before God. There's something wrong. Something needs to be hidden. Something needs to be covered up now that they didn't feel they needed to do before. And so Genesis 3 verse 7 says after they both sinned by eating that fruit. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Now, it's interesting here to note because it's clear that God is using language to accommodate Adam and Eve. He knows exactly where they are. He says, where are you? But he knows exactly where they are, of course. But he asks after them. And they can't hide from him, though they've tried to. They must know that. They must know that the God who's created them just a, a short while ago, possibly, we don't know how long it was, that they enjoyed the Garden of Eden before they sinned. But some time ago, they, they know that God created them. They know that who God is. They've experienced a relationship with him. But now they've got this instinct to hide from him, to cower away from him, to run away from God. What a sad thing. But 
when that instinct is there to run away from God, to hide from him, what are we running away with? What have we got? What is it that we're holding on to? What is it that is so important that we hold to, 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 to that, feel, that we feel we have to run away from God and we, we can't turn to him? It's a bit like running away with a hand grenade clutched close to you. The pin is out. And this hand grenade can go off at any moment. A slip of the fingers, and that's you gone. Now, God told you not to pull out the pin. God told you not to play with the grenade. God told you there was something wrong about that and dangerous and deadly, but you did it anyway. There was something exciting about having something forbidden, something powerful in your possession, something exciting. You were told not to, but you did it anyway. And as God approaches you, you're ashamed, you know you've done wrong, and you run off with that deadly device. There's something in you that wants to run away from God, to hide from him. And you, as you're running away, Jesus calls to you. He says, turn to me, seek me, and live. But you keep running. Why? Why do you keep running? God is offering you a rescue. You can live, he says. You can be saved. But still you clutch this thing. It's what a sinful nature does. The Lord speaks again, turn to me, confess your sin, stop running, trust me. So you stop, you turn, you say, I I'm sorry, I want to let go, but, but I don't know how. And as you begin to try to let go, you recognize that your hand is frozen, you just cannot let go. And everything goes blank for a second, and a sense of movement, and then there's a muffled explosion, and then your eyes refocus, and they're stretched out on the ground before you as the Lord. He fell on that grenade for you. He absorbed the blow. You're saved. You can now live because he took the grenade for you. Now, when you stop running, you can live, of course. You, 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 you can let you look, this grenade has been taken away from you. It's the, this blast has been absorbed and now you can live. And you can learn to, to run, but not run in the wrong direction anymore, not away from God, but you can learn to run to God. You can learn to run in the right direction. And something amazing happens, a, a, a total change, a turnaround. The fact that you can't run away from the Lord now becomes your delight. It becomes your security. It becomes your comfort. When you were holding on to sin, running away from God was a way of escaping a guilty feeling. But now that the sin is gone, now you're forgiven, running to God is your delight. And knowing that you can't outrun him is, is a joy. You can't get away from him. And that's wonderful. Wherever you go. And there's a lovely passage in Psalm 139, which talks about this. The, the comfort that we have, the joy that we have, knowing that we cannot escape from God. Knowing that we cannot run from his presence. When the guilt is gone, the negative becomes a positive. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Can you see the turnaround? Someone whose sins are forgiven, someone who now recognizes that the Lord has taken their punishment for them, that the sacrifice has been made in their place, now delights in the fact that they cannot flee from the Lord's presence, even if they wanted to. Now, 
If that sinful nature in you tempts you, that there may be a chance to outrun God. A chance that God might not in the end be able to catch up with you. Maybe he's not powerful enough to do everything that he threatens. Maybe a chance that he doesn't really exist. Maybe there might be other gods or other forces out there in the universe. Well, the next part of Amos' message, the next part of the preacher's message, drives home something that you know deep down is true, but you have to see it and, and realize it afresh. So the second, sorry, the third thing that you there standing in that marketplace, in that doorway, the third thing that hits you home, hits home in your heart is that the Lord alone is God of all. The Lord alone is God of all. Verse five. The Lord, the Lord Almighty. He touches the earth and it melts and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. And as you hear this part of the message from Amos, you remind, you're reminded of the fact that you're not a master of even where you stand. You're not a master of even where you stand. And we're not, are we? We're not the lords of even the ground that we're standing on. We're not the lords of ourselves, are we, really? We're subject to weather. We're subject to our health. We're not in control of that. We're subject to other factors that we can't fix, that we can't control, that we can't order ourselves. We struggle to master our own hearts, don't we? We struggle with self-control. We struggle to, to master our own selves, let alone our circumstances around us. We feel so helpless and we face up to that. We're so subject to outside factors, aren't we? To our world, which we, we cannot take it all in, can we? We can't even take in our country, our town. We've never grasped, fully grasped firm, what have we? We've never fully grasped Newark, all its ins and outs and places. We don't really know it in its entirety. And we're so tiny, even in the, the estate where we live, even in the village, the town where we live. We're so small and there's so many factors that could crush us, damage us, hurt us, so many factors that we just cannot control. And then let alone the solar system. Can you control the solar system? Of course not. Can you control the universe? Of course not. We're so tiny, we're so small. Now, Rico, Rico Tice, who um, uh, wrote an, uh, the original Christianity Explored course and still involved with uh, such courses. It, what, if you remember, if you've ever done that course, he, one of the comments he made is based is referring to the, the miracle where Jesus calms the, the storm on the lake. Uh, and as you know, the, the, the waves are, are, are really high and the wind's blowing very strong and the Lord speaks and the wind stops and the waves went flat. And he comments on the fact how that, you know, even if the wind stops, it takes a while, doesn't it? It takes a long time sometimes, sometimes hours and hours for waves to settle down. And he was commenting on that. And he, he said, he can't even control the waves in his birth, let alone the waves on a lake or a sea. But the Lord Jesus said, quiet, be still. He controls it. He's in charge. The Lord alone is God of all. The Lord Almighty is the creator of this universe. He can grasp it all with a thought. He's not subject to it. He's a sovereign over it all. The Lord is the Lord Almighty. And this is what verses 5 and, and 6 are showing us here. He touches the earth. And it melts. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the earth. The Lord 
is his name. So why are you running? If you are running, why do we have that in us to run? You know, even, even as mature Christians, we do it at times, don't we? We let the Lord down. And what do we do? We don't confess it and come before him. We kind of do what Adam and Eve did. We go and hide away. We build some, uh, something, a fig leaf covering. And we don't come to the Lord and confess our sins, do we? He says, if you confess your sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to purify from all unrighteousness. But what do we do? We hold on to the grenade and we run with it. And we think well, we can do something with it. We panic and we run off with it where the Lord could just take it away. And he's already paid for it. He's already absorbed the explosive wrath. Why are we running? It's pointless to run from the Lord God Almighty, isn't it? It's pointless to run for him. And the other thing is this, we can turn and we can be saved by the Lord Almighty. So we can pointlessly run away from the Lord God Almighty. We can't escape from him. Uh, we, we can't get away from his presence. It's pointless running away from him. So that's one option to do the pointless thing. Or we can turn and we can be saved by the Lord Almighty. Now, the logic is it's very clear, isn't it? It's very simple choice. And surely we want to be saved by the Lord Almighty. And that's going to be a good salvation, isn't it? If the Lord God Almighty saves you, that's going to be a good salvation. And again, if we stop running, if we turn and be saved through Christ, the fact that the Lord is almighty turns a guilt-ridden threat to a grace-filled blessing. It turns it all around, doesn't it? You know, instead of longing to get away from God, we want to draw close to him. Instead of seeing God from the perspective of our, of our being guilt-ridden and seeing God as a threat to us, we see God as a grace-filled blessing, his presence as a grace-filled blessing. Now, you're back in Israel. You're back in that dark doorway, still listening to Amos the preacher as he goes through his points, and crowds are still passing by, and you see some people from your village, and they wave dismissively at Amos. <laughs> and then you see some boys, they start throwing something at Amos. Most of it misses, but one or two pieces, is it bread maybe, or, or a pebble, hit him on the chest and his arm, but he, he carries on, he doesn't give up. And so you continue to listen. And as you listen, a deep, now a deep sense of shame hits you. You're an Israelite. We're supposed to be the Lord's people. Well, the Lord rescued us from Egypt way back in the Exodus. He led us to the promised land. We've got a great history. Think of all that God has done for us. Think of all he's given us in his word. Think of his great help and his power. But as she looks across the marketplace and sees people mocking the preacher, as she looks and sees those boys throwing things at him, as she thinks about the things that are going on in that temple that's supposed to be to the Lord, but it's corruption. As she thinks about her own heart, as you think about your own heart, male or female. Look at us now. Look at us now. And a deep sense of shame. And the fourth thing is this, that hits home to your heart. Us Israelites, we look like Gentiles to the Lord. We look like Gentiles. The Lord's people behave like people who don't know the Lord. This is what's going on. And this is what is said in verse 7 here. Are you not, are you, are not, sorry, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. The Cushites were a pagan nation. Are you Israelites 
Not the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? The Philistines from Kaftor? The Arameans from Kir? You know, you're not the only ones that I've rescued. I rescued the Philistines. I brought them up from Kaftor. The, the Arameans came from Kir. What's the difference with you? Warren Wiersbe comments and says this, the exodus from Egypt will be looked upon like any migration of a people from one place to another. For the people of Israel gave up their national distinctives when they abandoned the worship of the true God. Us Israelites, we're looking like the Gentiles to the Lord. Now, if you go to the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we can see the Apostle Paul's godly love for the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. Now, a few people in that church who claim to be Christians have behaved badly. Uh, some may not be the genuine article. Some claim to be Christians have, have behaved worse than some non-Christians in the, in the town. But Paul still loves his church. He still loves his people. But he's concerned that his genuine love for them will be rejected. He loves them dearly, but he's concerned that his and his team's genuine love for these people will be spurned. And so he writes these very moving words in 2 Corinthians 12. And it gives us a picture of the Lord's love for, for his people. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, Will you love me less? You see the Apostle Paul's heart here, his tender heart for the people. If I love you more, will you love me less? And think about the Lord's love for the people of Israel. He's loved them, he's loved them, he's been patient with them. And what are they doing to him now? Us Israelites, we look like the Gentiles to the Lord because of the way we're behaving. So back in Israel, a people loved by the Lord but ungrateful, spurning, disregarding such love, as you stand at the edge of that marketplace, deep shame for the sin of your people comes across you. And in particular for your own sinful response to the love of the Lord. How you have rejected, spurned that love, ignored him. How you've been complicit in all sorts of things that have dishonored his name. And your heart is broken. You're convicted of your sin. But then, like a sunrise, a glimmer of possibility comes through in the words of Amos. And so the fifth and last thing is this. The last thing that hits your heart is this, that there is hope, hope that I could be saved. Verse eight. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. So basically what's described here is a great upheaval will come upon Israel. Uh, we looked at uh, uh, this last time uh, with a description of like the Nile River. Well, we had that earlier on in this passage as well. There's going to come a, a great upheaval and it, it, the imagery is there, but it's going to involve the Assyrian nation that's going to come and uh, invade Israel. And we know that came true about 30 or so years later. And the Israelites are going to be kind of lifted up in a sieve and Israelites are going to be scattered. And the, if you like, the soil is going to be scattered away from their land. And many are going to die one way or another. 
And it's as if God is going to put all Israel in a sieve and shake that sieve. And the soil is going to drop through where, where it's going to drop, scattered, and it's going to drop through to condemnation. But, the, but there's going to be people who are going to be saved. They're going to be people like pebbles in that sieve. There in the sieve will be pebbles, little stones. Maybe not important to many, but saved and precious to God. And not one is going to go through the holes in that sieve. Not one is going to escape out the sides of the sieve. But there's going to be precious pebbles kept there safely in that sieve. Not a pebble will reach the ground, the Lord says. Ray Bealey uh, comments this and says, though the judgment will be universal, in, in, in one sense it will affect everyone in Israel, everyone's going to be touched by it in some way or other, it's universal in outreach, it will be individual in discernment. God knows those who are his. God knows those who are his. And sometimes in our experience of life, we're caught up with the, the problems, the disasters, the difficulties in society in general, aren't we? And it feels like the, our life has been shaken in a sieve. But the Lord will keep his people. Not one pebble will drop to the ground. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. We are in a firm, solid place. Whatever experiences we go through. Jesus knows his people. In John chapter 10, verse 14, which we're very glad that uh, we had that uh, parable earlier on about the, the, the lost sheep and about the Lord being the good shepherd. And uh, John's gospel talks about that imagery and that picture as well. As Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. And then verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one Shall, will snatch them out of my hand. No one, when it comes to it, will snatch them out of the sieve. Not one pebble will drop to the ground. Now as you stand in that darkened doorway, your heart is racing, and you find yourself stepping out of that doorway, and you walk across the marketplace, and you weave through passing crowds, and you, as you walk across, you're broken by the sense of your own sinfulness. You're filled with a sense of shame for your nation. And you're filled with a drive to return to the Lord, to be saved. You see hope in the hard-hitting message of Amos. You see a glimmer of hope. And you're not going to lose this chance. You're not going to miss this opportunity. Amos has finished with the words of the Lord for now. In verse 10. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. And you realize it's unrepentant, it's complacent sinners, all those who ignore that the Lord will, will judge and condemn. And they will be judged and condemned. The people who ignore the Lord, disaster, those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Well, I'm, I believe in you now, Lord. I believe there is a disaster coming and I need to be saved from it. Will you forgive me? Will you accept me? Can I be a pebble that will not fall to the ground? Can I be saved? I want to be in that sieve, Lord. I want to be saved. Despite the scorn of people around you, you walk up to Amos with tears in your eyes, heart longing to be right with God. What do I have to do to be saved? With more history, with the events of the cross clearly in view. Someone else asked that question. What must I do to be saved? Disaster was looming realizing their sinfulness, grasping what Paul and Silas had been singing there in the prison cell, maybe hearing something of the message that they preached. 
And this rough jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, of course, you there in Israel, in the time of Amos, didn't know about Jesus. But you know about sacrifices must be paid. You know that God must save you. You know that you need to be forgiven. And the answer is the same. Believe in the Lord and you will be saved. 750 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life as that full and final sacrifice to pay the penalty for sinners to be saved. For those who repent and believe, they'll be kept safely in the sieve. Is that where you want to be? Is that where you are? Do you want to be in the sieve? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The Lord will take that pebble, looks a bit dusty maybe, but he will clean it up and it will become a precious jewel in his kingdom. Do you want to be like that? That's what God does with us, pebbles, whom he loves and saves. If we're running away from him, please stop. If as a Christian we're holding on to something that we know is damaging us, let go. Believe that Jesus has taken that punishment in your place. You don't need to hold on to it. You can escape that and you can go and run in the right direction. Run to the Lord, into his arms and rejoice in the fact that you can never escape from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those online and those in this room. Lord God, I pray that if there's any one of us who is still running from you, you'd help us to stop right now. Lord, help us to turn to you to be saved. You invite us, turn to me, seek me, and live. Lord, help us to stop running away with that deadly grenade, something which will destroy us. Take it from us, Lord. Help us to let go by your grace. Lord, help us to rejoice in the fact that if we're a Christian, that running to you is a joy and delight. It's our safety, it's our comfort, it's our security, it's our refuge. Help us, Lord, to run to you more and more. And when we're tempted to run away, when we fail you, when we let you down, remind us to run to our tower, to our refuge, who is Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for each other. Help us, dear Lord, as we ponder on these things, as we meditate on these truths and apply them to our lives. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for being such a wonderful saviour who loves us so much. Lord, help us not to reject that love as we find out how much you love us. Help us, Lord, not to run away from that love, but to embrace it fully. And we pray for your help to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.